Welcome to the Stories to Learn By podcast. Uh, my name's Adam Mink. I'm here with Niall Gavin. Niall, do you want to just give a uh, some quick uh, intro to yourself, who you are, what you do, where you're from, that sort of thing? Um, so you might want to start the recording again, because the first thing I'm going to do is correct you. It's spelled Niall, but it's pronounced Neil. Neil. <laughs> Ah, well, no, no, we'll stay that because that'll stay on the recording because every single time I say someone's name's wrong. So it's a thing now. Uh, and we can, <laughs> it can just show you the professional professionalism to the podcast. So, no, that's absolutely. Thank you for, for correcting. Uh, it, listen, uh, at, at my age now, I've had I've had um, let's just say over 60 years of that being mispronounced. <laughs> but but that's OK, because. Uh, the, the, there is a, a reason for that, and, and it's to do with the difference between the Irish Gaelic and the Scottish Gaelic. And I'm Scottish. The Irish Gaelic is Nile. Yeah. And that tends to be the one that, that most people know. Yeah. Uh, the Scottish Gaelic technically is Niall. Um, but the only person that ever called me Niall was my mother, because it lends itself to that kind of drawn out admonishment type pronunciation um, but to everybody else it's Neil but you know if I had a pound Adam for every time and then it, I, I compound it by or it is compounded by my surname being Gavin so you know take your pick I'll respond to anything but you know what's really interesting I don't think I'd quite uh, heard the the Scottish in your accent before until you said mother <laughs> my mother <laughs> Um, so is, is where do you live i mean are you you in you do live in scotland or? well i couldn't be any short of being in the isle of wight i couldn't be any further away um i'm in worthing um but i was born and brought up in a wee village there you go scottish again yeah. a wee village called Kobarchen, uh in which is outside glasgow um and i went to school in paisley and then i went to uh drama school in edinburgh which is where I ended up with this slightly hybrid, slightly affected Scottish stroke Southern British standard accent. Hmm. Um, but you, you, you know, you can hear it in the inflections more than maybe in, in my pronunciation sometimes. But because um, when I went to drama school, that was so that was 1973. Yes, I'm that old. Um, we were still being kind of uh, educated as actors that it wasn't acceptable to have a regional accent, despite Scotland having a, a, a growing and thriving at that time native theatre industry. Um, so I graduated and when I started working as an actor, uh, most of the work I got was down south. Um, and I moved down south. I had a London agent and all that sort of thing. So, and then I married a Londoner as well. So, you know, what chance did I have? Um, and then ironically, I did my, probably my best work as an actor when uh, back up at Dundee Rep over two or three years. Was there for a season and they had me back a couple of times for, for other things. Um, but I never really cracked the Scottish theatre scene because I wasn't Scottish enough, you know. Um, so, yeah, I gave that 12 years and then thought, you know, by that time, Mandy and I um, 
knew that we were going to be together. We wanted to get married. We wanted to um, put a, a, a safe roof over our head and start a family, none of which was compatible with being a struggling actor. And we were both actors. So um, that changed the, that's what changed the direction. So there you go. It's a long answer to a short question. No, no, and, and, and loads to unpick at some point, the, the, the Scottishness bit. That I think that's a really interesting subject. You know, people just, right, well, I'm not going to unpick it um, right now, but yeah, so, uh, so, you've, so you ended up leaving acting and, um, and where did you find yourself? Um, my wife and I started uh, an IT training company with another couple. Um, and I knew next to nothing about computers in those days. The other three did, because they were all using them on a daily basis. Um, and I remember running my first ever course, which was a Lotus One Two Three green screen. Oh, wow. Um, and Mandy effectively taught me how to deliver that course. And I remember very clearly that I that there was no hesitation, no deviation, no repetition. Um, I, and if somebody had asked me a question that was off my script, I was I was going to be doomed. But I got away with it, and I learned as as um, as, as time went on. Uh, and then from there, the business was doing all right. We we managed to keep going for two or three years, but then the recession hit nineteen ninety ninety one ninety two. And most of our client base kind of dried up. So we realized we were at risk in that our total income was dependent on that business. So I dropped out and got a job with a training company in Brighton. And we never really looked back from there. We both kind of had almost parallel careers in IT training and that led into me broadening those horizons into learning and development, became the IT training manager at Sussex Police. And um, Mandy sort of moved more into the um, legal IT training. And so she got to travel all over the world. You know, she, she, got, to, she got to go to Chicago and South Africa and, and Germany. And I got to go to Aberdeen. <laughs> um, but that, you know, and, and within that time, we we um, were thought we moved down south. We moved down to uh, Hove, uh, Brighton and Hove. That was in 1990, and we didn't have kids when we moved down there. And I blame it on the sea air. Uh, we <laughs> how many? Uh, we have two very grown-up uh, children now, uh, Natasha and Samuel. Um, Natasha's an interior designer and Sam's, he's, he's a film graduate, uh, has his own YouTube channels, does film reviews, um, currently working for the NHS, um, but uh, prospects around the film and the videography and that sort of thing going on for him, which is quite exciting. Um, and of course, we've it's all been very informed by 
what's been going on for everybody in the last 15 months. You know, uh, Natasha was living and working in London. Um, she was working from home and that home at that point was for young women in a house share. Mm. Um, and that wasn't sustainable when you got four people trying to work off the same small kitchen table. So she came back home um, in June last year. So she's been working from home since then. Interestingly, just about to move back to London um, to be and, and still continue to work from home, but she's going to be doing the hybrid working yeah. um, into the office, into the studio maybe once or twice a week. Um, so that's going to work for her. We're thrilled. Uh, she's the last of us to get her uh, vaccination. She's getting her first vaccination a week tomorrow, just before she goes back. Um, and we've all been done, um, Mandy and I, and Sam and his girlfriend both work for the NHS. So they've been done as well. So, um, yeah. That's a, a very quick potted career stroke family history. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's lovely. The, the, just to pick into Sam's like YouTube piece, I was talking to the Andrew Jacobs about the, the fact that you can create a niche and because of that niche, you can, you know, literally it can be tiny, but because of the fact that you can reach people on YouTube, on, you know, wherever, you can make a living out of these things. Yeah. I've, I've got some friends who, who run a football-based like podcast, YouTube channel, all that scenario. And theirs is quite specific. One, it's based around one club, my club, Tottenham. Uh, and two, it's uh, uh, really like focused on data and analytics of players, um, which is niche, right? That's a niche within yeah. the niche. Uh, and um, and they are making a living, five of them, all making enough money from Patreon, uh, where they have a monthly five pound you give them, and uh, every month that pays for them to to do. And they've got like over, you know, it's a it's a silly amount. It's like fifteen hundred people pay this every month, and between the five of them, they all uh, use this. Um, to, to to create content and and, and uh, work, I, they they really do some incredible stuff, and it's yeah. that tiny niche that really empowers you. That's what I think. One of the things that YouTube opens up that, and I'm a coffee geek, and there's I've, I've got, there's a, a, another guy that um, I've got to know over sort of all these things and uh, about coffee, and he's absolutely. It sounds ridiculous rolling in it to the point of where now he has his own you know the the patreon earns more money than his coffee shop it's it's insane um, so there's 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 loads of ways of sort of making a living from those things so yeah sam hasn't quite cracked that he he rebranded his channel um a while back because he it, i mean he started it when he was 16. yeah so, you know, it was that old story. It, it came up in conversation yeah. and he said, yeah, on my, on my YouTube channel. And, and we kind of went, wait, what? <laughs> Stop. YouTube channel. You have a YouTube channel. Oh, that's what you've been doing up there. Okay. So, um, 
And, but it was very much based around his his passion and interest in kind of the superhero movies and the Spider-Man stuff. So again, that was very niche. And he had a a, a, a relatively steady kind of Patreon income come out of that. But having gone to university and, and graduated with a with a first in in, in film production. Um, he wanted to change his audience because it was kind of, yeah. it was becoming repetitive and he wasn't broadening his reach. And he had far more interest in other genres and film criticism and film review than that audience was necessarily, necessarily receptive to. So he rebranded and broadened his, his, his output. Um, and that hasn't provided enough of an income for him to, to be able to step back. But he's maintained it. And I mean, obviously I'm biased, but um, he comes from a, from a family of communicators. So it, it's no surprise that his communication skills are fantastic. His community management uh, within the, the audience for his channel is, is fantastic. It's, it's a lesson to us all. Um, and he supports that with his, his social media presence. Mm. So I, I think it'll happen one, one day. Um, and I think he's the, the, the opportunities that are beginning to present themselves, I think are going to pull all those um, skills into, into um, place for him and give him a living out of it. So we'll yeah. see. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of uh, uh, Super Marvel, especially fans uh, that I know have, have, have given a, a listen to this. I think some of the people in LMD seem to love them. Um, yeah, so uh, we'll put a link in the description to Sam's YouTube channel. Yeah, great. I'll, I'll let you have that. Yeah, see if, uh, see if we get him a, a, a Patreon or two. Cool. Um, so just coming back to you, so the acting you know, you enjoyed that and you see loads of, I guess, similarities. You know, you mentioned being a great communicator. You absolutely, you know, see up. Um, that helps with training. But with IT training, yeah. no <laughs> um, so I was having this conversation with a, a colleague who used to do training on, um, oh, what's it called? And on an authoring tool. Uh, and he said, you'd sit in a room there'd be 20 people in this room because that seemed to be this weird number that seemed to be fine to deliver training to any more than 20. And all of a sudden it was a, another thing, you know, I don't know why this magical number of 20 works, um, but uh, everyone would be on a laptop and you'd be showing them something and then they'd be repeating that on the laptop. And he always said that it was just an awful experience because you just, all you were doing is just walking through. Tell me that's not how you did it. <laughs> I never did. I never did. I mean, I, I, I told the story of running that my first course. I think I, because I came to IT training almost as, as a tech virgin, mm. if you like, mm. um, my, my interest and my perspective on it was always about the user. And it, it, I, hadn't, I, I never had, and I continue to not have, 
any interest in how the technology works, uh, or what, what, what's under the bonnet. Mm. What I'm really interested in is how can we use this to make the user's life easier and make them more productive, mm. uh, which is my approach to it anyway. I don't need to know what's under the bonnet. I have absolutely no interest in it. Um, and I'm, I, I'm harking back to the days when I was training DOS and I, I trained DOS from, a, from a, 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 a position of, I hate this, but it seems to be necessary at the minute. Mm. I realized very early, no average user needs to understand an operating system, you know. And then, of course, Windows came along and uh, our, our, biz, our then business, we ran taster sessions on Windows 3 when, when it first came out. And the light bulb really came on for me was this is all about the user. Yeah. There's no right way. There's no wrong way. There's what works for you. What's your context? Let's talk about your context and your problems. So, and, and you know, at this point, I'm going to give a shout out to what was then the Institute of IT Training. It's now the Learning and Performance Institute. But what that did, what the LPI did, or the IITT as it was then, was it, it took that focus on, on people and use and context and improving the delivery skills of the trainers to embrace that stuff. It wasn't about teach people how to use a system for system's sake. Mm. And I got behind that very early and I, I was one of the very early members of the, the then IITT. I think I'm member 321 or something like that. Um, so for me, that played directly into how I saw the future of not only IT training, but training, you know, and, and, and as I've moved into learning and development, that's been kind of the philosophy behind it. You know, I'm no expert. I, I don't harb, I don't hold all the knowledge, nor do I want to or need to, you know. Um, I'm here to help you get the best out of whatever it is that we're here to talk about. So, so that transition that you're talking about, I, the, the sort of the transition from everyone having to build what they need to use to everyone using something else as someone else has built. That has a lot of similarities with the transition that we're sort of on the cusp of having right now, which is going from everyone needs to be able to code to build something to people can build what they need without any code. The yep. whole, there, there's, there's a real big sort of no code revolution that's almost happening right now and even um even with the ability to connect one system to another that required so much knowledge apis yeah. and you know being able to use those apis and all these sorts of knowledge whereas now <laughs> and it it sounds like i'm uh well i am dumbing it down you literally click this program that program pass that information and it does it and that like things like Zapier and um, and Automate and what's the other one? Work Workato, yeah. I feel like that's the other one. Things like that are just 
you know, they're automating it for businesses. But then you have things like if uh, IFTTT, which yep. does for, for the per you you know personal people, you know, and things like that are gonna that transition might well that transition would be interesting. Um, so you could be building apps next year, you know, no code, no knowledge of as you, as you said you wanted you don't want any knowledge of how it works. Yeah, maybe you'll be an app developer next year, Neil. <laughs> Neil's face. It doesn't work on audio. But it <laughs> yeah, we, we'll we'll have a conversation in a year's time about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it's about context and and relevance. Mm. Um, if it if it has no relevance for for you as an individual, why why would you even want to get involved with it? You know. Um, so, yeah, coding um, doesn't doesn't hold any particular attraction for me. But I'm all in favour of democratising that stuff, and people getting the benefit that they they need out of it, as long as it's not as long as it doesn't become the be all and end all. You know, there's got to be a purpose. There's got to be a value in it. Um, otherwise, there will always be, I mean, thank God for IT departments and, and IT professionals that really love to dig into this stuff. Mm. Uh, I think the big sea change has been that those people are now user focused, They're, you know, the user experience, user value has to be the has to be the driver now and if you're not creating solutions that will enable that then you you're in the wrong business i'd suggest how how widely spread do you think that that thought process is because I, I i'm sort of picturing the the it people i've spoken to over the last year or two and i didn't get that feeling that they were user focused. It was it was admin focused, i.e., reduction of of admin for them, for 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 for, for people, for staff. That was a big thing. So maybe that's the user. That's one level of user focus. Mm. Like they want to help people deliver more. I think that's where um, kind of the halfway house professional sits you know the 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 experienced designer um that can they, they can engage with and they can they can embrace the tech side of it but their output focus their outcome focus their value focus is um on how how can we make that relevant and useful and valuable to the user um so, so I think that, it, and and I guess that's where I see, if you like, the the, the value of the internal IT department or the the IT consultant, if you like, that um, you know they're not a slave to the machine, if you like, but they're a, a servant to the user. Um, 
I've just made that up. That's a really good analogy. I'm like, watch out for that on Twitter. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I think I think that's kind of and and when I'm working at the moment uh, with the CIPD, I think that's where we kind of are. Um, that that you know we we're we're getting tech systems and and uh, solutions. Uh, provided that we are reinterpreting, re-engineering, and the outcomes, well, it's not so much for re-engineering, but internally we're providing that context because we know our internal users, we know our external users, and we're anticipating what future users may need or want and structuring the outputs from that solution into the user space. In, in a useful and relevant way. So again, I, you know, I think internal IT de departments have had a bad rep for, for years. Um, but I, and to my earlier point, I think it's about they're now on the they're, they're on that um, cusp, they're on that transition point between the techie and the, 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 the user. Um, I stand to be corrected in all this. This is purely <laughs> my, my opinion. And, and um, you know, it's based on experience, right? Like you, you've obviously been in room with IT people with, where that that is their their focus. And I have, I'm thinking back, like I've spent the last eighteen months or so working with a system with IT uh, that's usually contracted by IT people, and then delivered for for learning uh, people to to then use. To your point, right? They're yep. learning yep. and become that halfway house. They start designing the experience. But generally, IT are involved in the contracting. Um, and my experience of that has been that IT have been, um, does, you know, does it do X, Y, and Z, rather than uh, how does it improve a user's performance, if that makes sense? Yeah. Or how does it, you know, does it tick these boxes rather than does it have an outcome? And that's, yeah. that's been, um, been my experience for most of them, I'm saying most because there were. There, I'm thinking back to one in particular who uh, had no interest in, in 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 what the app system actually did, but just uh, how, how it impacted uh, the outcome of the business. Everything was about performance, KPI, yeah. and so on and so forth. So yeah, so so maybe. I mean, I've I've um, I've now experienced system implementations mm. via projects in the public sector, the private sector, and the third sector yeah. now. Um, in, in the private and the public and the private, because we're going back a wee while now, um, the focus was very much on it, and it was ERP systems, you know, so so you can draw your own conclusions, what, what they might be, what they might have been. Um, and it, it was hopelessly over-engineered, um, hopelessly complex, um, delivered as an IT project rather than an end-user project. Um, and neither of them were particularly successful. I actually, I mean, I, 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 it feels like in, in, it was about nearly 20 years in, in the public and then moving to the private sector. Um, 
I don't. I, I think in the public sector we did man. They, there was something implemented which they, they had to pare down to make it work, mm. and they had to build interfaces to make it user friendly. Um, which again was the internal IT department that actually bit that bullet, you know, and actually they got user acceptance because they turned it into something that the user could actually use without having to understand the back engine. Um, and, and similarly in the, in the private sector uh, that I was in, it felt like for all the time I was there, we were trying to bring in a, a, an ERP system. And when I left, we still hadn't done it. Um, you know, and I sat on all these project boards. I was senior training on the project boards. Um, I advocated for the users throughout, you know, but at the end of the day, they were trying to sell you a, you know, a, a tool, a toolbox full of really complicated tools um, to to crack a very small nut. But there you go. I'm, I mustn't sound too cynical. No, no, no. It's not cynical. It's a, the the the, um, the the thought process there. Like a lot of these products do. They 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 are. They have these massive scope of uh, of tools of things you could possibly do um and sometimes that you only need a tiny bit of it because there's there's a um there's a trend in in in, in technology everyone moving from a component model where you buy a component and you implement that component to yep. a SaaS model where effectively you buy the whole thing uh and you you kind of don't get a choice or there's like levels of it right and yeah. effectively you buy the lowest level but you're all you're always going to hit a point where you've got to get upgrade and upgrade and upgrade to get to a higher and higher level and take on more cost in any way um so it's interesting that um you know as you described it that maybe the component model where you could just pick one tool and go, we want that tool, made more sense. Yeah, yeah I don't know. It's not my... I think, I think I, it's that big thing about the, the, the tool that's fit for purpose. Mm. Um, and I think literally being able to lift, lift that bit out and make that work without having to worry about all the other stuff. Um, I'm hoping that's the way it's, it's going. I mean, I, I, I don't get involved as much with those kind of implementations anymore. And I'm quite happy about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for me, it's all, it's all about the user. It's all about the, the productivity and, and the engagement and the, and the outcomes for the individuals. You know, even more so, I think, now, the way we're working, you know, we, again, we can't ignore what's happened in the last 15 months. I'm sitting in my lounge at home, in the study area of my lounge. You're clearly in your garage. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, it's, um, and, and that's the way we're going to be working, you know. Um, I'm in the fortunate position. I'm, I'm, I'm living the, the, the flexible working ideal life now, and that I'm part-time yeah. where, where, where I'm working. So I work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So every weekend's a bank hol uh, an Easter bank holiday weekend for me, which is why we're recording this on Friday. Um, 
And that really works for me. Yeah. But I, again, you know, I, I'm in the fortunate position. I can afford to do that. I've been working for longer than I care to remember. Um, technically, I could be retired now if you, if you were using the old model. Uh, and I am drawing pensions. Um, not my state pension yet, so draw your own conclusions. Um, but I, I don't need to work that hard and I don't want to work that hard. Um, but I'm fortunate that I'm working in such a way I can do my freelance stuff. So I still do um, some freelance consultancy for the LPI. Uh, I've got my three days a week with, this, uh, with the CIPD. Um, and anything else that, that, that comes along. Um, and that suits me. And I think more and more people, certainly what I'm picking up and certainly in the discussions around uh, the HR world, which of course what CIPD is the representative body for, um, there's, you know, we're not going to go back to full-time in an office. Those of us that work in that way, you know, I think it's well worth, and I, I've made this point several times on, on social media, not everybody works in an office. Some people don't have the choice. Some people never actually stopped working. And this whole back to work, back to normal, incenses me. I'm going to get on my high horse here. Um, you know, and, and that's driven by economics. That's driven by people that, that have... Uh, uh, substantial investment in people going back into those kind of spaces. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the businesses that I think will thrive will be those that recognize that and that really do um, flex from first, you know, that, that, that um, make it easier for people to genuinely work flexibly. I don't think we've really grasped that nettle yet because there are all sorts of implications around it about how people's, what people's home situation is, what their domestic situation is, um, what they may need in terms of infrastructure, what they may need in terms of emotional and physical support, mm. all those kinds of things. Um, and the businesses that don't, embrace that, that don't address that, are the businesses from which people will walk. Yeah. I, so my, my, my wife works in, um, she's a social worker, and so she ends up working in councils, but she goes in, in and out of places. Yeah. Um, or has done over the last couple of years anyway. And we have this conversation a lot she's quite fortunate to have a very open, very uh, forward-thinking um, leader that in turn allows her to be a very forward-thinking and open and uh, um, sort of just not accepting the status quo manager, right? Yep. Um, and it's interesting that she talks about them not having to go back to the office, you know, uh, but even with this looking out and, you know, being really, you know, not 
not pragmatic is the wrong word, but but just not accepting the status quo. They are still doing, uh, you know, requiring some days of of uh, in the office. Yeah. Um, there's and there's not a huge reason other than, you know, for them to be in that office. And she she often finds that uh, everyone ends up. That, that she's you know the only person in a in a te- in, you know in an eight person team that's in that office uh, and so she, you know why am I here sort of thing or she finds herself dialing into to calls from the office uh, um, and then everyone in that office is on a phone call rather than um, you know talking to each other or mm. together uh, on something so I think. You know, to your point, you know, the, the, the flexi first is is a great point. But also maybe that not being the approach for for for, for everyone. Because there are you you know, you're right. Not only are there the jobs that uh, require you to go in, but there are also jobs in, in an office that require you to to go in and collaborate. Those creative industries. Yep. Uh, how are they how is collaboration over a zoom call i imagine it's not great yeah um, well that's that's the situation my, my my daughter's been in i mean she's a, an interior designer um and being part of the team uh, and collaborative working is has been enabled by the tech hmm. you know and it's good tech because of the the you know, the, the, the demands of um, d- good design uh, technology availability. Um, she spends a lot of her day in uh, conference calls and uh, online calls uh, and sharing designs. And, you know, she's got an iPad, she's got a, um, uh, a, a stylus pad, she's got the big iMac, um, uh, and the, all the tools are, are, are there for it. Um, but she's not sitting down in a, a collaborative space and, and passing sketches across a desk. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's looking forward to doing that. I think we can't underestimate the value of the social interaction, the serendipitous interaction and learning that you get from being in a shared space, a, a shared physical space, yeah. you know, um, going for a coffee with a, with a colleague, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm very conscious. I've, I've the, the the way I'm working is I'm very conscious of falling into the trap of digital presenteeism, you know, um, and you know where if I was in the office and I took ten minutes at the water cooler or fifteen minutes to grab a coffee with a colleague, I wouldn't even think about it, you know. Um, but I think, and then I think, okay, so the computer's going to go offline when, I, when I'm away for five minutes. So can I do it and get back <laughs> before, before it goes offline? And, and it shouldn't, I shouldn't be thinking like that, you know. Uh, and we are trying to encourage, uh, and, and my colleagues are trying to encourage and, and support each other in, in not falling into those traps. But if you've got a culture that has always kind of depended on presenteeism or micromanagement, mm-hmm. um, then that's, that's, you're always going to revert 
because that's how you're going to be expected to show up. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of work to do around that. Um, and it's it's going to be interesting, you know. It's you know if if, if uh, we come out of everything on the twenty first of next month, which depressingly didn't look to be the case this morning, because I'm going on holiday on the twenty fourth. Um, the the we we we're not going back to normal. I think that's that that's the point. We're going into a new reality, and that new reality is is not that old model. You know, the the when we very quickly just to 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 give you a little backstory um, in ninety no no two thousand and fifteen. Um, I took ill um, and uh, quite quickly, and I I had a triple coronary bypass, um, kind of out of the blue, um, and I, so I was off work for five six months, and when I went back, that became a conversation about uh, redundancy. So I took the redundancy. So I, I've had I had a few years off. Uh, picking up the odd bit and piece of uh, consultancy. But I had been commuting up and down to London from Sussex for nine years. Um, and I was going into an office where nobody in that office I worked with directly. We all worked for the same organization. We were all in HR, technically. Yeah. Um, but I didn't work directly with any of those other people. My team was dispersed across uh, Glasgow, um, Manchester, and, and, and Swansea. Um, and I was being managed remotely from Aberdeen and Glasgow. So, you know, that kind of remote, but I was still going into an office. Um, and I enjoyed the interactions I had with the people in that office. Mm. You know, that was... It, it, had had they not been nice people, that would have been hellish, because I had a like two and a half, five hours commute a day to achieve that. Um, maybe not unconnected with why I needed heart surgery, um, but I I so I've had the benefits of working in all these kind of different ways. Um, so moving into the way we've been working over over pandemic has been okay for me been a big shift for a whole lot of other people. Um, but consequently, I'm in no rush to go back to whatever that old model was, yeah. because I stopped that old model six years ago. Yeah. That, that's the, the thing in my head is that, that someone's going to impose a requirement. And I think that that, that requirement is always where we're going to go wrong. That yeah. you're going to be two days in the week in the week in the office. You're going to be three days in the office. You're going to be you know whatever working from home. It's the fact that it comes from a requirement rather than a purpose that that is just um, feels the worst bit. The that it's wrong. Yeah. That, you know the requirement is because it always was. We need to be in the office at an X amount, and we need to be sat at a desk. It's about control. It is. It is. And I, 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 
I'm mean, sort of like, you know, even with some, you know, so for instance, where I work, we gave up our office early. Like uh, we went, we sort of went work from home. Someone said it was two weeks before we went into lockdown in March, but I think it was more, um, but I can't picture the actual, I haven't put the effort into finding out the actual date, but, um, but it felt like a month before. Actually, it was a month before for me. Now I remember why uh, I was like a month before lockdown. Um, I broke my toe. And so I was like, I'm not, I'm not, you know, strapping on boots and all this sort of thing. I could, I was hobbling. It was, I broke, I think I broke two or three of them actually. Ouch. But, yeah. I fell down the stairs and kicked a wall and looked down and one toe was pointing that direction and the other one's <laughs> like that direction. Um, but of course with toes, they just strap up your foot and, yeah. uh, and hope that it mends correctly. Um, and, and did it? Yeah. 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 It's all fine. I, I don't even, yeah. Yeah, bizarrely. Uh, yeah. So anyway, so I did that before lockdown, right before lockdown. So I would, yeah. that's why, it, and I remember now, that's why it feels more than everyone else feels. But I, so I went into lockdown, as it were, a month before everyone else did. Yeah. And, and I haven't been back to an office since. And it doesn't look like we're rushing back to an office. Mm. Um, and we've given up our office. And, uh, and 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 working remotely is going to be the norm for a while. Yeah. And and it's been, yeah. I think even with that being really lucky to have that that presenteeism that's there, considering we are you know a, a very business focused OKRs KPIs all that sort of thing mm. business. Um, there isn't a lot of micromanagement at all, but there is a feeling that if you get you get a Slack message that you should re be responding to that within the half hour uh, and so on. And that's just, you know, at worst. And that's, that's sort of that feeling that you described. I absolutely have that and I've got to get rid of it, you know, uh, that I should be reachable at all hours and all times. And, and yeah, I, I think we're our own worst enemies sometimes, you know, but, but again, you know, the, we've had, probably through all of our working lives, a culture that that was what was the expected norm. Yeah. You know, it's only in the last 10 years maybe that um, we've, we've begun to see that we actually have the tools and the facilities that allow us to be a little bit more flexible. I started working from home on Fridays um, it, 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 when, when I was in full-time employment up until 2015. Um, I, I, to be honest, I didn't ask for permission. Uh, I just did it and mm. waited to be, you know, apologized later. And I was never challenged on it. Um, and that made me realize that actually, if more people kind of did that, and, and you know, the, the, the technology and the facilities haven't changed that much. We just leveraged them better. Mm. Um, in, in, in the digital transformation that we call COVID-19 um, or the pandemic that we call digital transformation, take your pick. Um, but we, we always had, if we had but known it, the, the ability to do that. Yeah. And what we didn't have was the cultural or the societal understanding that we, that we had permission. 
Yeah. And I still keep coming, coming back to that, that requirement. Like even with fully remote companies, they're like, we're fully re- remote. You know, the requirement is that we have no office. You know, you, you know, it's not the purpose. Is there, is, is it, is there a purpose for being fully remote? Is there a purpose for all of this, um, you know, transformation or, you know, and, you know, if you're working in a shop, there's a purpose. You've got to go in to sell stuff to people face to face. Yeah. Yeah. Or is it, you know, um, uh, but that's, that's, uh, that's a sort of another story, I guess. But yeah, you're right it lit a fire under everyone's ass to uh, transform their, their, their business. Um, and it was surprising how few stories of, you know, businesses not being able to do it. There was, yeah. I mean, there was a, yeah, people had to go out and buy some more technology, you had to go, but there was very few um, stories of like this business stopped functioning. Maybe I just didn't hear them, but um, yeah, really interesting. Um, yeah, we normally go into some stories, but this has been far more interesting. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry, I got on my high horse a couple of times. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's been it's been um, it's been really interesting. I think I'm gonna bring it to a close. I think. Um, is there anything like you wanted to, to discuss? Because these, these I, I send you over the stories, but they're just a bit of fun. Um, you know, the, you talked about your family, which is lovely. Uh, that's one of them. It, do you have a story that you tell in the pub uh, at work? Because that's the one that everyone says, uh, can't tell that on here. <laughs> um, no, I, I I don't think I do. I mean, people that know me know know that I was an actor for twelve years. Yeah. So, but people that don't know me, so sometimes when you know, tell us something that nobody here will know. Oh, yeah. um, I I I tell the story of auditioning for and winning the understudy role of the the young man in the mousetrap. Uh, <laughs> Nice. Which, which, you know, if if people that know me and probably a lot of people that, that may listen to this already do that and say, oh, he, he, Neil's going to trot out his tired old mousetrap story. Um, but people that don't know me and I can pin against a wall in, a, in, in the pub, uh, I'll tell that story. So I, I guess. Tell me that, that story. So what, 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 how, how did that come about? I was just I, I I went for the audition. I had a I had a London agent, and you know how the mouse traps just run continuously yeah. for God knows what forty years now, um, and they do regular sort of cast swap overs, mm. um, not all at the same time. And they auditioned for um, I think they were auditioning for the role itself, uh, and I auditioned for it, but clearly wasn't good enough to get the part, but it was good enough to be the stand-in if the person that got the part uh, fell down the stairs or anything like that. And it was still at that point in my acting career where, you know, you 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 never turned down work because you never knew where the next bit of work was going. And actually, I just couldn't face the idea of commuting into the theatre every night to sit in the dressing room for the first uh, hour of the show just to make sure that 
that character didn't injure themselves mm. and then go home again and get, yes, I'd have got paid for it, but I think that would have been the death of the soul. And ultimately, I think that's it's kind of why I walked away from acting. I, I felt that I'd, I'd done good work. I was capable of doing good work. I'd proved it. Um, but all the other stuff that, that I needed to get on with, like building a life with somebody and, and building a home and building a family, um, that wasn't going to be served by, you know, still being auditioning for, for understudy roles. When, you know, I met, I met Mandy when I was 27. We got married uh, three years later. Um, I, and it wasn't going to be sustainable, you know. And I'd seen too many uh, relationships uh, with very single-minded actors. And I, I use the, the, the collective for the male, the, the male and the female of the, the species and the non-gender specific members of the profession as well. Um, and the, the, what I saw was a lot of sadness, a lot yeah. of, in many cases, anger, a lot of bitterness. Um, and I thought that that's not going to be me. Um, so I, I was quite when I saw the potential for alternative ways of of living uh, and working. Mm. And I think um, I had a friend again who was is an actor, and he said years ago because I tempt, you know, I I did I've driven delivery vans and lorries, I've stacked shelves, I've run a pub. Um, you know, if you, if you look at my blog site, I've done a little bit of everything. Um, and my, my, my pal, he, he said a long time ago, you put an actor into any other job and basically you'll get a cowboy and they'll, they'll just pick, up, pick it up and run with it because they don't know the rules and they'll do a brilliant job. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't frightened about, you, you know, I tempt, I, I, I worked for a news agency transcribing news broadcasts uh, on manual typewriters. Um, so so I, I didn't, I never had any fear about kind of stepping into something. I thought, well, I'll give it a go, you know. Um, again, sorry, that was a complete digression from what's what? the story you tell in the pub. This is why I need to pin people up against the wall. <laughs> yeah. They're going to enjoy being pinned up against the wall. Well, I don't know. You don't know me, but just stay there. <laughs> no, it's, it's really interesting. I, you know, just transcription, man, that has come a million miles since, obviously. Like, yeah. I, I, all right, I'll tell you a story in return uh, about uh, being in theatre land and that whole bit in, in, in West London. So I, um, coming out of school, I went straight to work in hotels uh, and uh, I did every job in the hotel uh, and settled in my early 20s as a concierge. Uh, and so a concierge job, you know, sell theatre tickets, put people yeah. in in the right place, in the right restaurant, right time and all that jazz. And I happened to do it at a great hotel in, in Covent Garden. And uh, so we would have, I would work evenings a lot. Uh, 
So I'd walk in uh, as everyone was going off to the theatre, get them in their cars, get them off to the theatre. And when you said about waiting an hour and then, you know, uh, and then buggering off um, and getting paid for it, it triggered the memory of all of these actors walking in before the show had finished. And I don't think I ever put the two and two together that they were all the actors that were backups. And they were the understudies. Yeah, they were all the understudies walking into this bar in this hotel, uh, you know, um, after having seen, you know, the actors go on and everything be fine. Uh, and the, 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 the second act starting. And so they were no longer needed. Uh, and so I, there you are, I've closed the loop for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hadn't actually thought, thought about that before. Um, and then because you'd then see all the actors join at 10 o'clock or whatever once they got out and got their makeup off and all that jazz. Some of them would just stroll in straight off. The, it was quite funny because it was in Covent Garden and you had cats around the corner at one point and, uh, and they would all walk in with the cats' um, uh, makeup on. Yeah, they just couldn't be asked to take it all off. Uh, and they'd walk in uh, with the whole shebang in sat in at the bar and you'd have a bunch of cats sat at the bar, um, uh, which was uh, always amusing. Um, but yeah, yeah, funny things like that. And um, yeah, and we'd have all of the famouses stay there, which was great because you just, you, you'd end up dealing with all of the paparazzi at the front door. And uh, yeah, that was funny. You like, probably met more famous actors than I ever did in a 12-year <laughs> acting career. Um, yeah, yeah. I've got some stories as well that I'm legally not obliged to be able to tell. But yeah, I'll bet. <laughs> uh, I, wonder, I wonder what's the, the, the sort of the, the, the time frame that I could start telling those. Because uh, it's, it's seven years since I worked in a hotel. So I wonder how many. Well, do you reckon seven years would be safe? I think probably need to be dead before you can do that. <laughs> uh, definitely some of the actors wouldn't want to know, uh, wouldn't want those stories tell, told out loud, that's for sure. Um, you, people, people ask me if, if I miss acting. Mm. Uh, and my, my stock answer to it is, to be honest, I missed it when I was an actor. <laughs> because in, in actual fact, in 12 years, I probably only worked as an actor for about four or five of those years, if you add it up. And of that, maybe a year, 18 months was stuff that I was really proud of, you know? Um, and that's okay. But it, it, it was, like I say, it, it wasn't sustainable. But you know what, that's really common because everyone that worked in that hotel was an actor, singer, musician, whatever, writer, all of them had this thing that they were. Yeah going for and I think I was the only one that was sitting there as a, a as a tech head and I'd be like overnight I sort of started to teach myself to code while I was bored overnight on these ancient computers in the hotel um, and that's where sort of uh, how I ended up in learning tech um, so yeah interesting look it's been an absolute pleasure um, talking to you thank you for, for coming along